The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Stocks under pressure once again, as yet another Fed official doubles down on the central bank's pledge to keep interest rates higher for longer. Less than 24 hours after taking the top job again at Disney, Bob Iger already making some major changes. This amid new revelations about Bob Chapek's final hours as CEO. The fallout continues in the wake of FTX's spectacular collapse. Now another firm is reportedly weighing bankruptcy as investor capital continues to dry up. Plus, a wild ride for oil as OPEC pushes back on reports it's considering possibly boosting production before the year is up. And then later on, Elon Musk waffling again on the relaunch of his Twitter Blue subscription service. It's Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I'm Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan today. Let's kick off this hour with a check on U.S. equity futures right now. Moving to the downside, at least in certain parts of the market overall. But now we've reversed. And now the Dow is moving higher by just about 85 points implied at the opening bell. The S&P up by about 11 and the Nasdaq up by 30. On the bond market side of things, checking the yields, the benchmark U.S. 10-year Treasury note yield currently ticking just a little lower to a hair below 3.8%, 3.797 the last trade there. And the benchmark two-year note yield, 4.498%, so hovering again right around that 4.5 mark. In energy, oil for U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate back above the $80 mark, $80.43 right now, up 39 cents, one-half of 1% gains there. The similar percentage move that we are seeing also in world benchmark, ice Brent crude futures up 45 cents, $87.90 the last trade there. Within cryptocurrencies, still hanging right around that 16,000 level for Bitcoin, now below it to 15,645, down about 1%. Ethereum prices, 1,077, down 2.5% on that trade. We also continue to watch shares of Disney after yesterday's sharp move higher on news that Bob Iger is returning as the company's CEO and he's already getting to work. In a memo to staff, which was obtained by CNBC, Iger says former CEO Bob Chapek's right-hand man and head of media entertainment, Kareem Daniel, will be leaving the company ahead of a major restructuring in the coming weeks. Multiple reports this morning also detailing the growing frustration of executives around Chapek during his final weeks as CEO before his ousting. We'll have much more on that big Disney story later on this hour. But first, let's get a check on the overnight action in Asia and the early trade in Europe with Arabile Goumede. He's standing by in our London newsroom with the latest there. Good morning, Arabile. Yeah, good morning, Dom. So certainly the big question marks and the big story pieces uh, out of Asia and affecting market trade has been COVID lockdown restrictions. We're seeing that the government has put out uh, a few more stricter positive uh, 
possible measures putting out in China then. And that is on the back of an increase in the number of COVID-19 cases and three deaths uh, around uh, China as well then. So we are seeing uh, a lot of grumbling around the market with the Hang Seng falling down one and a third of a percent by close of trade, losing a whole host of that, around 2%, in fact, in the last hour of that trading picture because the tech stocks were the ones sort of feeling uh, the brunt of things out on that front. So you see, seeing, you are seeing losses there, but the rest of the market pretty much in a mixed picture and seeing some sense of positivity. Onto the European picture then, well, we started off seeing a little bit of negativity for the European picture, but it's fared a whole lot better now and moving into some greener pastures then as well. Nine-tenths of a percent higher for the FTSE 100. Even some of the energy companies have actually moved higher on the back of those lockdown numbers coming out uh, of the Asian region. Even the basic resources, a lot of the miners enjoying this positive trade then and headed higher there as well. Half a percent uh, stronger for the FTSE MIB as well in Italy, with only the SMI sitting in that precarious flat ground territory for now. Still a lot of interest being put on those COVID-19 restrictions out in Asia. That will be the basis as, of course, liquidity begins to dry up as we head towards that Thanksgiving uh, holiday then for the remainder of the week. Dom. Our Billy Goumede in London with the latest there on the market action. Thank you very much. Let's get to some of this morning's top corporate stories. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Good morning, Silvana. Dom, good Tuesday morning to you. Billionaire investor Carl Icahn is betting against meme stocks, one in particular, GameStop. According to Bloomberg, Icahn began shorting the stock during the meme frenzy back in January 2021 when the stock was near its peak of $483 a share. Icon has reportedly been adding to this position from time to time, saying the stock could fall even more and that it's not trading on fundamentals. Elon Musk is planning to delay the relaunch of Twitter's $8 per month blue verified service. In a tweet late yesterday, Musk said the platform will, quote, probably use different color check marks for organizations than individuals. Now, this comes after Twitter Blue was launched earlier this month, but was quickly pilled after users abused the new paid option, creating imposter accounts across Twitter, leaving it ripe for misinformation. Musk had originally planned the relaunch for November 29th. And Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester says inflation will need to show more signs of progress before she's ready to stop pushing for interest rate hikes. Speaking with Closing Bell yesterday, Mester says the recent progress is only a start. We're at a reasonable point now where we can then sort of now be very deliberate um, in setting monetary policy to get back to price stability and be more judicious in balancing the risk so as to minimize the pain of that journey back to price stability. And so that's how I see the next phase of policy. So I don't think we're anywhere near to stopping, though, in terms of you would phrase the question like slowing and then eventually pausing. We still have more work to do. And Dom, the Fed's final policy meeting of the year kicks off December 13th. We'll all be watching. All eyes on the Fed for sure. Silvana, thank you very much. Thanks. Ahead of the opening bell, a bit of historical perspective on the holiday shortened trading week. Compliments of the team over at Bespoke Investment Group. Now, in years like 2022, where the S&P 500 is down at least 10 percent, while Monday session tends to be lower and Tuesdays more mixed, performance on Wednesday and Friday, Black Friday, tend to see some of those stronger returns, as you can see there. Now, Wednesday's session, on average, gaining more than 1% with gains of around half a percent for the Friday session. So for more, let's bring in Malcolm Etheridge, the CIC Wealth Executive Vice President 
and Mark Avalon as well. He's at Potomac Wealth Advisors. He's the president there. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Uh, Mark, maybe we'll start with you. You heard the Mester comments, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester on closing bell yesterday. This is uh, we're nowhere near done, I guess, is the point of this whole process with with the rate hike campaign. But you're hearing a lot more these days about journey versus destination. In other words, the number or types of rate hikes that we have versus what the ending rate for Fed funds will be. Which are you paying attention to more? Well, good morning. And I watched that interview and she was clear to say that the Fed has entered into a restrictive zone. And I was reassured to hear that because at least it tells us that they're monitoring how the impact of all these rate hikes is affecting the economy. So I think she and she even did say that we're down to a 0.5 level and that 0.75 was quite aggressive. So you could hear that the downward slide in rate hikes is here. I think that's because they're seeing the slowdown in the economic data, housing, uh, rental prices, commodity prices are all starting to slow down. So I'm looking for a more benign Fed in 2023, and I think that could eventually become positive for stocks. So, so Malcolm, it's, it's, it's a good point, that this idea that, that you could have certain Fed policymakers, in essence, throttling back, right, on, 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 on some of their commentary. They're still hawkish, just not as much so. Is it a reason to be more constructive on stocks, this idea that, Yes, we know the Fed is going to continue to hike interest rates, but they're not going to keep going at this 75 basis point clip the entire way. Well, one, I think it's great to hear uh, Fed governors coming out and, you know, remaining hawkish, but also giving a little bit of hope. But we also know that there's really only one Fed official uh, whose statements really matter here. Um, And I also think to answer your question more directly, Dom, uh, the the reality is that most investors have already tempered their expectations that 75 basis points in December is very, very, very unlikely. We're, we're probably going to see 50 basis points. I think consensus has rallied around that. And so the majority of any uh, uh, activity we see in the markets that's related to Fed policy specifically from here on out is going to be based on whether we think there's a pivot coming or a cut coming or some positive uh, movement in rates that way in 2023 because nobody wants to be behind that curve. Nobody wants to be late to the pivot party is the the phrasing that I heard recently. And so I think that most of the activity is baking in that 75 basis points is gone and trying to get ahead of where Powell will go for 2023. So Ma- Malcolm, does that mean that you're looking at tech stocks again? Is, is it media communication services? We've talked about at length over the last several days and then weeks now Disney just the latest, but the underperformance in places like media and technology, are those the places that you want to be if you don't want to be, so to speak, late to that pivot party? Yeah, Dom, I've never abandoned my beloved uh, uh, tech trade. I think that uh, any market movement that we have in the near term, right, in the next six to 12 months is going to be driven by mega cap tech. I think that eventually we rotate away from that trade, but I also think it's very, very tough to get away from those eight, 10 names that led the the initial correction, I I think those names also have to lead us out of it. And we can have a recovery uh, toward the end of this year or early next year, more likely, uh, without those names participating, but it will be a much bigger recovery with those names participating. And so I think it's very tough uh, to leave them behind just yet. I think that rotation that people are looking for is more of a 2023, 2024 story. 
Mark, it's not just equities, right, that are that are part of this conversation right now. We, we've gone for years talking about the Tina trade. There is no alternative. You had to be in stocks because you were making nothing in yield on the bond market. All of a sudden, you're making four and a half percent on short duration two year Treasury notes. That's what the yield is. And three and a quarter, call it to four percent for 10 year notes and even better for investment grade corporate debt, highly rated stuff. Are bonds now a more attractive part of that story? Does that 60-40 portfolio, so to speak, come back into, into, the, uh, into the lexicon here in, in financial markets? Well, that's a great question. And since many investors fall into that moderate, moderate risk lower on the growth end profile, a 60-40 allocation does make sense for them. And for people to look backwards at this past year and say a 60-40 portfolio is dead because, candidly, it's had a bad year. That's that's the wrong way to look at it. You have to look forward. And now that interest rates are higher, bonds could provide that buffer against when a stock market decline happens. You're getting four and a half percent on a treasury, five and a half percent on an investment grade corporate. And that is while right now below the inflation level, it's well above the target that the Fed is settled is settling on. So I think for moderate risk investors to abandon the bond trade just because it had a bad year this year is looking in the rearview mirror. And instead, they should look forward and see more of an opportunity in a balanced portfolio. We've got just a few moments left, gentlemen. Uh, Mark, I'll start with you Uh, in a couple of short sentences here. Your favorite sector of stock and why? Well, I'm looking at where interest rates are. We spent the day talking about interest rates and how they're higher. I think a sector like the insurance sector with a huge bond portfolio, those asset values have been beaten down. They own real estate, which has been beaten down, and they've improved their internal product lines, lower risk offerings, better management, lower costs. We like financials and we like the insurance sector. And Malcolm, the last word to you, your favorite sector of stock out there. Yeah, I would drill all the way down in that mega cap tech trade I mentioned and focus specifically on cloud computing. I think that that sector, when we talk about quality companies that have uh, decent financials and actually have the potential to see some positive returns when the rest of the market is depressed, to, to deliver their product costs very little. And the, the migration to cloud computing is not going to stop anytime soon, whether we're in a recession or not. All right. Malcolm Etheridge says he likes the cloud stocks. Mark Avalone says he likes the insurance ones. Thank you, gentlemen, both. Have a great Thanksgiving holiday. When we come back on the show, Beijing tightening its grip as a new COVID-19 wave sweeps across the country. We are live in Beijing with a report next. Plus, the dominoes keep falling in the wake of the FTX scandal and Sam Bankman-Fried's collapse. The latest on that story ahead. And then later on, why retail guru Stacey Whitlett says some stores are going to have to get very aggressive to win shoppers back this Black Friday. Does that mean discounting? A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this commercial break. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? 
With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Another rough session overnight in Asia as China grapples with one of its worst COVID-19 infection waves since April. The region's biggest consumer stocks making sharp moves lower. We're talking names like Metwan, Alibaba, JD.com, all down 4% or more. Our Eunice Yoon joins us now from Beijing with the latest on the COVID infection wave. Eunice. Thanks, Tom. Well, Beijing is a near ghost town after the city reported two new deaths and as COVID cases hit fresh highs. Uh, the city authorities have said that they are now closing more parks, uh, malls, and they're urging residents to stay at home. They also are now requiring a, a negative 48-hour COVID test uh, as of Thursday for more public places. Now, Beijing is just one of many cities around the country that are seeing fresh uh, uh, COVID cases or COVID cases hitting fresh highs. In fact, the total count for the country as of this morning was 29,000. Now, obviously, from a global perspective, this is a really small number, especially given the size of the China's the Chinese population. But at the same time, it is alarming a lot of authorities in what they've described as a grim situation. So near Beijing, uh, Tianjin is now conducting mass testing. Um, also, Guangzhou down in the south said that they are imposing tighter lockdowns on more districts. Uh, Chongqing out in the west says that they are going to impose stricter stay-at-home orders and they're urging residents not to travel out. Now, Nomura uh, today put out some interesting research estimating that localities account for about 20 percent, they say now, of China's total gross domestic product, and then that those localities are under some form of lockdowns or curbs. And from their perspective, it's not so far away from the situation that we saw back in April when Shanghai was in lockdown. So obviously a serious situation. Some encouraging, though, encouraging news, though, coming out of Zhengzhou, which is China's iPhone city dom. Uh, Zhengzhou said that their COVID cases are dropping and the local media have reported that Foxconn, the Apple supplier, um, is getting closer and closer to reaching their goal of staffing their facility with 100,000 workers. They said they're about 30,000 shy of that, but the government uh, there, as well as just the provincial authorities, have been trying to ramp up the production in that iPhone plant. Eunice, uh, you bring up a very interesting point. For, for, for several weeks now, if not months, we, we, we've spoken a lot or we, we, we've speculated about this idea that COVID zero may exist in some form, but in a more targeted approach by the government, meaning that they would kind of be a little bit more surgical and not just shut everything down. These manufacturing hubs are key for China's economy. If you're telling us that 20 percent, one fifth of the Chinese economy could be under some kind of restriction. It'll have an effect on GDP. Is there any progress that, that you're hearing about being made on whether or not it will no longer be a wide shutdown of things, but maybe perhaps just more targeted for certain localities and or certain businesses, industries or even companies? Well, that's certainly the messaging from the top. Um, the uh, leadership is trying to, at least seemingly so, get the local authorities to become much more targeted and specific. 
as you say, but the challenge is trying to translate that on the ground. So from a local perspective, a lot of these local authorities um, think that they are being more targeted, but they're only looking at a really small area, sometimes just a neighborhood. So, um, so trying to translate all that on the ground is um, one of uh, a huge challenge for Beijing. And in addition to that, you mentioned zero COVID. Um, this whole week, the state media has been trying to explain the new reopening rules. But in those explanations, they continue to say that zero COVID is a, a magic weapon. So until you, um, as long as we have this zero COVID being the standard, it, it, it just makes it so much more difficult to think that the local authorities won't prioritize keeping their caseload near zero and that they're going to continue to use all these lockdowns and quarantines as the primary method to reach that goal. And, and with that, it makes it difficult to see how economic activity could return to normal. Confusion still a big part of the story there. Yunus Yun with latest in Beijing. Thank you very much. Stay healthy. Still on deck for the show. The fallout continues in the wake of FTX's spectacular collapse. Now another firm is reportedly weighing a possible bankruptcy as investor capital dries up. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's get a check on this morning's other top headlines. For that, we turn to NBC's Francis Rivera in New York with the latest. Good morning, Francis. Dom, good morning to you. Colorado holding a vigil last night to honor the five victims killed in the LGBTQ nightclub mass shooting. We are also learning of the heroes who likely prevented further loss of life. Richard Fierro, a decorated Army veteran, was one of at least two people who tackled and subdued the gunman after he opened fire inside Club Q. There are five people that I could not help, and one of which was my was family to me. Raymond was was part of our family since my daughter was in high school. I got into mode, and I needed to save my family. And that family was, at that time, everybody in that room. I'm not a hero, I'm just some dude, man. Everybody, everybody find their heroes this Thanksgiving at the dinner table. Fierro and fellow clubgoer Thomas James ended the rampage that killed at least five people and injured 19 others. Now a tragic news out of Indonesia. At least 162 people have been killed after a magnitude 5.6 earthquake struck their main island of Java, triggering landslides and causing buildings to collapse. More than 2,200 homes were damaged. Rescue efforts are still ongoing. A major milestone for NASA's Artemis mission, the uncrewed Orion capsule sent back this image of Earth looming right behind the moon there. As it began, its closest approach slingshotting around the moon and coming within 81 miles of the lunar surface. The Artemis journey is expected to last 20 more days. And now to a groundbreaker on the diamond, Olivia Pichardo is making history for Brown University. The freshman from New York became the first woman to ever make an NCAA Division I baseball roster. Pichardo is listed as a utility player for Brown, having previously pitched and played in the outfield for USA Baseball Women's National Team. Dom, now that is how you play like a girl, the way it should be.
Kudos to her. What a great story here, especially when it comes to what's happening with college athletics these days. Francis Rivera, thank you very much for those headlines. Sure. Uh, coming ahead on the show, talk about a fall from grace as a former pandemic winner just can't seem to catch a break these days. Your morning mystery chart revealed that stock is down 60% year to date. We'll be right back. Investors grappling with renewed worries around COVID cases in China and gearing up for another round of Fed heads talking the central bank's rate hike strategy. Futures right now are modestly higher. Shaking up the Magic Kingdom, newly appointed CEO Bob Iger making his presence felt after just one day on the job as new details emerge about what led to Disney booting former CEO Bob Chapek and getting a gauge on the health of the consumer. More retailers set to report results today as shoppers gear up for the Black Friday and Cyber Monday deals coming up. But will it be a happy holidays for the retail industry? It's Tuesday, November 22nd. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan today. Let's kick off the half hour with U.S. equity futures right now, currently showing some modest gains at the opening bell. The Dow is implied higher by just around 45 to 50 points, the S&P higher by just around seven points, and the Nasdaq higher by just about 16. So gains, but they are modest right now. To the latest on what's happening with Disney and new details emerging about that massive C-suite shakeup involving Bob Iger's return as CEO. Silvana Hanau is here with more on that story. Silvana. Tom, good morning. Well, Bob Iger already making his presence felt less than 24 hours back on the job as the head of Disney. Iger telling employees Monday the company would be undergoing a restructuring in the coming weeks. Amid that announcement, Iger revealing that Kareem Daniel, Disney's head of media and entertainment and a close ally of former CEO Bob Chapek, would be departing. Now, this according to a memo obtained by CNBC that also discussed a new structure that puts more decision-making back in the hands of Disney's creative teams. Meanwhile, details are emerging about Iger's pay package. According to filings with the SEC, Iger will receive a pay and compensation package valued around $27 million per year. Meanwhile, Bob Chapek is likely to receive a severance package worth at least $20 million. And speaking of Chapek, his downfall came as a result of top company officials and others raising concerns about his management. Sources telling our David Faber, one of the executives to express a lack of confidence in Chapek was Disney CFO Christine McCarthy. Additional reports suggest that Iger, who had heard some of the complaints about Chapek's leadership, advised some of the executives to take their concerns to the company's board, Dom. The latest here on the details around Bob Chapek's departure and Bob More Iger's return. Silvana, thank you very much. It, it is the final stretch for retail earnings before the Thanksgiving and Black Friday events, if you will, with Best Buy, Dick's Sporting Goods, Dollar Tree, Nordstrom, and American Eagle Outfitters all reporting results just today alone. Those results are coming as the broader retail sector gears up for Black Friday and, of course, Cyber Monday. And fresh insight into the strength of the consumer after strong October retail sales figures and gloomy outlooks from the likes of Target and TJX, amongst others. 2022 is proving to be a tough year for the consumer discretionary sector, down nearly 33% compared to a 17% drop for the broader overall S&P 500. So joining me now to talk more about this is Stacey Widlitz, president of SW Retail Advisors. Uh, she knows a lot about retail. So let's start with a big macro question. Is this retail pain trade over or do we have to wait for the Q4 holiday shopping season to finish 
before we know what the real results are? Good morning, Dom. You know, I think we we have more pain ahead of us until we clear through the inventories that, you know, you and I have talked about so many times over the past six, eight months. Um, sales or sales growth is way lower than inventory growth. That's still the case. It's getting better. It's getting healthier. All the companies that reported are making progress, but we're not quite there yet. That said, expectations are incredibly low here. We know promotions started super early this year. They do every year, even earlier this year. And you're, the consumer has been very clear. They are responding to markdowns and promotions. And every retailer that's reported has said that. They've also said that business slowed in the second half of October. And Urban Outfitters added to that last night, saying all three brands slightly slowed down into November. So, so Stacey, uh, maybe can we start uh, w- with one, the bigger part of the market, and then we'll kind of work our way down towards some of the individual parts. Uh, we heard a mixed story from the big box retailer side of things, whether they be straight up retail or home improvement. Can you take us through what your takeaway was given what Walmart said versus Target versus what Home Depot said versus Lowe's versus what Costco is saying? Is the overall health of the consumer good despite the mixed picture that we're getting from all those retailers? Dom, that's a good point. And and the consumer is healthy. There is demand. We don't have an overall demand problem. We have a demand shift problem is that we're shopping on different things than we were during the COVID years. And, you know, retailers didn't plan for that. They didn't plan for the shift from away from home, away from comfortable clothes to travel. So we have too much inventory in the wrong places. And that's the bottom line. The consumer is also spending on basics, on food, which is up double digits year over year. Turkey's going to be 17 more percent more expensive this year. So their, their, their wallet is shifting to other areas and the wallet is shifting away from discretionary. You, know, you brought up Lowe's and Home Depot. Lowe's said that they're really not seeing a slowdown. Uh, Home Depot said in some Price points, they are seeing a little bit of resistance, but generally a healthy category. You know, average ticket is still up there. The 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 pro is still spending on backlogs of jobs that we've had from housing over the years. So I guess it depends which category you're talking about. Um, but certainly apparel, consumer electronics, we're going to hear about, more about that from Best Buy today, has pulled in and it's all about promotions getting consumer affected. Uh, oftentimes, the holiday shopping season does does focus around things like consumer electronics and apparel. I wonder between the two, which you favor more, and if so, what's your top pick? Um, you know, I would say that I think if you look at the footwear category, we saw this huge rush of of over inventory, which, according to our data, really peaked at the end of August. So I would point out Nike as as most interesting here. The business is getting slightly better. We're working through inventory. I also think while Target's really beaten down. This is the new department store. This is the way we shop. When we go back to discretionary purchasing and inventory is normalized, I would absolutely look at Target here. I think it's bottomed out. All right. Nike and Target amongst uh, Stacey Willis's top calls. Thank you very much. Have a great Thanksgiving holiday. Good to see you. Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about what's happening with FTX executives, including newly minted chief executive John Ray, who, by the way, helped lead the restructuring efforts back in the day at Enron, are heading to a Delaware courtroom later on this morning for their first appearance before a bankruptcy judge. A lot of creditors and customers are hoping the hearing will shed some kind of light on how the bankrupt exchange is planning to deal with its debts and its customer funds that are not accessible yet for a lot of folks. Joining me now is CNBC's Mackenzie Sagalos. Mackenzie, 
What exactly can we expect to see later on in court today? Hey, good morning, Dom. So it's a big day for FTX. This is the very first hearing in the biggest crypto bankruptcy case yet. The new leadership team is going to be covering a lot of ground. FTX has filed several motions with the court, along with an agenda for the hearing that lays out pretty much exactly what they're asking for. A lot of these requests have to do with keeping day-to-day operations afloat. They want permission to pay outside vendors and key suppliers. FTX's new team is also looking for clearance to consolidate bank accounts and establish new ones, in part to keep paying its employees. FTX estimated that its staff is owed around $1 million for work completed prior to filing for bankruptcy. We're also likely going to get a play-by-play of what went wrong and what new management is doing to safeguard the exchange's assets, including, crucially, those customer funds. So, Mackenzie, uh, one of the biggest questions still is whether FTX creditors, the people it owes money to, get their money back and if so, when they can expect that money back. Same question for the, the retail customers who, who kept their cryptocurrency assets on the platform. Are we going to get any kind of answer anytime soon on both of those fronts when the money will be there? So we did get some answers over the weekend. Now, while we still don't have a full list of creditors or how much they're owed, we did get some clarity through initial filings. So we know that FTX owes its top 50 creditors, at least $3.1 billion. But remember, FTX said that it could have more than 1 million creditors, and initial filings indicated liabilities of at least $10 billion. We're still waiting to see what the total exposure is there. In terms of how much money FTX has on hand to pay back both customers and creditors, one bankruptcy filing shows the exchange and its affiliates have a combined cash balance of just over $1.2 billion, but a lot of that cash is tied up. Now, FTX has said that it could need till January to put together a complete balance sheet outlining its total assets and liabilities. Part of the problem here goes to the inadequate bookkeeping system kept by the previous guard under Sam Bankman-Fried. So definitely going to be listening today to see whether there's any updated guidance, especially with respect to restoring those customer and or creditor funds. Now, Every day now, Mac, a a new headline uh, again about what another crypto firm may be feeling. We could be seeing some of those knock on effects, the ripple effects from the FTX implosion still going on. We've heard another name in the headlines this morning. What's the latest on this contagion effect and who is it going to hit now, possibly? Yeah. So, I mean, just look at the Bitcoin price chart. It's falling to a new two year low. It was trading at around fifteen thousand six hundred dollars earlier this morning. In terms of the internal contagion across the FTX empire, Bloomberg is reporting that U.S. prosecutors had opened a probe of FTX months before its collapse, looking into its U.S. and offshore operations, apparently with a focus on compliance with the Bank Secrecy Act. Meanwhile, a lot of questions in the last few days about Digital Currency Group, which owns both the crypto investment bank Genesis and Grayscale Investments. Now, Genesis is reportedly in talks to raise capital after pausing customer withdrawals last week. The firm also pushing back on reports that it's weighing a bankruptcy if it can't secure the necessary funds. In a statement to CNBC, it said, quote, we have no plans to file for bankruptcy imminently. Our goal is to resolve the current situation consensually without the need for any bankruptcy filing. Meanwhile, Grayscale, the asset manager running the world's largest Bitcoin fund, said that it won't share its proof of reserves with customers due to security concerns. 
And then U.S. senators are urging banking regulators to review SoFi's crypto trading activity, warning that it poses significant risks to individual investors. So clearly a lot at play here, Dom. A complicated story for sure. Mackenzie Sigalos with the latest there on FTX. Thank you very much. Coming up on the show, crude facing price pressure over China COVID concerns and reeling from reports of OPEC policy whiplash. We'll dive into whether there may be more downside risk ahead for not just oil, but elsewhere as well. But first, as we head out to break, a check on this morning's big money movers. Shares of Zoom, they're slumping. The company's third quarter results beat forecast and it hiked profit guidance for the year. But Zoom is cutting its annual revenue outlook as the video conferencing platform expects a hit from declining online business. Those shares down 9% pre-market. Zoom's chief financial officer will have more on this in a first on CNBC interview at 8.30 a.m. Eastern time. That was our mystery chart, by the way. Dell Technologies reporting better than expected third quarter results, but shares are falling as the company projects full year sales to fall short of analyst estimates by around $600 million. Dell expects the slowing economy, inflation, rising interest rates and currency headwinds to weigh on customers and their IT spending plans. Those shares down 2% pre-market. And check out Coinbase. Speaking of crypto, Barron's reports the yield on the company's debt was trading at around 57 cents on the dollar yesterday, well into distressed territory. The yield has surged since FTX implosion earlier this month. Shares of Coinbase are down about 38% since the end of October. They're up fractionally right now. But again, Coinbase debt falling in price and raising the yield on its debt. Worldwide Exchange is back in a moment. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Oil prices are moving higher today after wild price action yesterday. Both U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate and Brent crude now dove more than five five bucks a barrel to 10-month lows in yesterday's session on a Wall Street Journal report that OPEC and its partner countries, OPEC Plus, would discuss increasing output by up to 500,000 barrels per day at its next meeting on December 4th. But then prices rebounded in full after the Saudi energy minister denied that report, categorically so, saying the kingdom is sticking with output cuts. That's according to the Saudi state news agency. So let's talk more about this confusion with John Kilduff, founding partner at Again Capital. He's also a CNBC contributor. Uh, John, it's, it's pretty simple. If you pump more oil out and bring more supply to market, it moves prices lower. If you take it offline, supply lack of, makes prices go higher. What exactly are we to take away from this? Is OPEC Plus going to do something at December at its December 4th meeting? And that's why I, I stuck with commodities uh, in my career, Dom. You know, more supply, lower prices, less supply, higher prices. Uh, look, um, the, the dip yesterday obviously got the Saudis' attention. Uh, the move of, of WTI below 80 bucks is something that they uh, have a line in the sand in. More importantly for Brent, it's around 85. Um, it was a bizarre turn of events yesterday, uh, only, mostly because they had just... OPEC Plus had just engineered a supply cut or a quota cut, uh, not just uh, three or four weeks ago now at this point. So, um, you know, the market was caught off guard by the turn, alleged turnaround in policy and then obviously had the, uh, the whiplash back up higher uh, when it became clear that that wasn't the case. However, 
um, last month, the Saudis actually pumped more oil than they did the previous month. So it's a, it's a bit of a, a confused state of affairs here uh, with all the producers. Obviously, the situation uh, you know, with Russia uh, is, is the big uh, you know, 500-pound gorilla in the room here, uh, mostly because we are facing a supply cliff finally, potentially, uh, from Russia when the EU uh, embargo, for lack of a better word, kicks in here on December 5th, which is only now a week or two away. Uh, and <clears throat> we could finally, the market could finally lose meaningful amounts of Russian crude oil and refined products. That hasn't been the case so far uh, since the war started uh, with Ukraine. It could finally begin to bite here uh, in December, obviously, which is the peak demand period, the Northern Hemisphere winter, uh, which would make the lost Russian barrels uh, really uh, a factor in getting prices in rally mode. It's what we're all sort of holding our breath for. It's the parade of horribles when people talk about triple-digit oil again. Uh, but we've so far been able to skirt the worst-case scenario. Consumers have been very lucky. Uh, the setup for the winter is going to be a moderate sort of winter, the way the, uh, the, the atmospherics are looking. So we still may be lucky, but the true test is coming here in a couple of weeks for consumers around the world. So that, that you bring up an excellent point here. The demand dynamic of I mean, supply, I mean, they can jawbone all they want about supply. But, but what about demand? That's becoming a little clearer now, especially if China starts to lock down again because of COVID. Is that going to put pressure on prices? Very much so, Dom. And I'll tell you, the, the signaling, as we saw yesterday, is very important. You signal that you're going to be tight with supply. Obviously, prices will go up, otherwise down. But no, um, <clears throat> on the flip side of everything I just said, China is as important on the demand side of the price equation uh, as Saudi Arabia, Russia, OPEC Plus is on the supply side. And this COVID situation in China uh, has actually just recently um, gone off the rails. The number of cases is spiking. Uh, Beijing may go into a full lockdown across the entire city. Only right now part of it is. Uh, other key sectors of China are in lockdown already. Uh, it's hurting their economy. It's been hurting their economy. And their economy, China's economy, has already been problematic with or without COVID. Sure. The property sector, for example, in particular, GDP there, nothing like it was. So, uh, again, Consumers outside of China, lucky because we're not uh, being, you know, squeezed by their demand, uh, is facing this, you know, situation uh, that is keeping a lid on prices because of the COVID situation in China. Very, very much so. All right. John killed up at Again Capital with the latest on the state of play in crude oil. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Happy Thanksgiving. On deck yeah. for the show, Carrie Firestone is standing by with the stocks on her shopping list. She always comes armed with a lot of them, including some of the beaten up tech giants. Those names are coming up ahead. All right, welcome back. A quick check on stock futures right now. The Dow is pointing to gains of just around 45 to 50 points. The S&P up by 6 and the Nasdaq up by 15. Joining me now is Aureus Asset Management CEO Carrie Firestone. She's also a CNBC contributor, a regular feature on the Halftime Report. Carrie, good morning to you. I, I guess maybe the one, the one thing we'll start off with is whether or not you feel good about this seasonably strong time of year for stocks right now. Are we down enough to where we could see a nice year-end rally? Hi, Dom. Uh, nice to see you, too. I, I think that uh, we had some good momentum a couple of weeks ago that gave us a sense that there was going to be a real rally at the end of the year. We had that day where the CPI came in a bit light and 
S&P was up 5.5%, the NASDAQ almost 8%. We've had trouble following up on that. I mean, what's important to look at perhaps 50-day moving average still above it for the S&P, but right on the brink. So we need a couple of strong days in order to carry this forward. It would be great if we saw that uh, this week, but it's a very short trading week. All right, so with that short trading week, there have to be certain parts of the market that in, say, in the coming days and weeks as we head towards this seasonably strong time of the year are going to be more on your radar than others. Take us through your picks because you are a stock picker by trade. I'd like to know what's on that list. Sure. Well, the first thing I would say is it's a little early to be too aggressive on adding risk. The market has been extremely risk averse all year. But at this level, and there are a number of stocks that have had so much sort of battering ram at them all year that we think they represent attractive opportunities that you have to match with those that are more defensive. So on the slight risk on trade, we'd add some Meta, some Google, you know, Alphabet. We'd probably add a little Adobe or Autodesk, one of those perhaps Salesforce, CRM. These are stocks that have really come down tremendously. Meta sells for 10 times, a 10-time multiple if you exclude its cash. And these companies are starting to get religion. They've all talked about cost-cutting and making an effort to improve their margins, showing more to the bottom line. They're, they're activists in many of these technology stocks now. Uh, there are people coming at them from every direction. Google is an example where you're having a major hedge funds say, you know, we don't think that your structure is appropriate for the way we're looking at companies now. You need to bring more to the bottom line. So, yes, we see opportunities there. And then on the other side, we'd still have some defensive, safer names, O'Reilly Auto, um, Booz Allen Hamilton, American Express. Th those are names that we like, Thermo Fisher, because they represent real steady cash flow earnings. They may not have the same pop if the market turns, but you need them on days where we're in this risk-off situation because no one knows what the Fed is going to do. We really hope that inflation begins to come down, and there are good signs of it, but it's not so obvious to the market. So, so Carrie, before we let you go, we've uh, we got a few moments left here. I I've heard a lot about these uh, auto parts retailers. O'Reilly is near record highs right now, but the same can't be said for advanced exactly. auto parts. AAP is the uh, complete opposite story. How do you pick between the two? Well, you know, it's interesting. We've owned O'Reilly for years, and we've trimmed it a couple of times because, as you said, it's been a great stock. It's not cheap anymore. But they have been able to expand their base and have been able to raise their prices some as their costs have gone up. They've been able to address the supply chain issue, and Advanced Auto hasn't been able to do that. They've struggled with having product and inventory, and that has meant consumers are unhappy if you go and sure. you, you need something for your car. You need it now. Can't leave the car unfixed. Of course. Right? I, I, I'm, I'm, a big, I'm a big guy who likes to keep the cars on, on my driveway, so you know, I don't buy that new cars That and the golf often. clubs. <laughs> I get the clubs in the car. Exactly. Carrie knows me too well. Carrie Firestone, thank you very much for taking the time with us. Happy Thanksgiving. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next. The Dow is implied higher by roughly 40 to 50 points right now. We'll see you tomorrow.
You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 